1: This is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature Podcast. Suppose you ask an American what's wrong with the culture and have enough patience to wade through people's anger and cheap sound bites. You'll find surprising agreement across all ideological boundaries. Something is broken. Even those hell-bent on defending American exceptionalism will eventually contradict themselves and blame someone for why things are not as great as they should be. People feel a sense of loss. Whatever they believe, no matter how they answer, underneath it all is a deep sense of sadness, often masked by anger, that few can put their finger on. Life is not our property, it does not belong to us, yet we persist in behaving otherwise. The belief that we are its proprietors controls our treatment of each other and the natural world. It thrusts the insanity upon us that everything exists for us. This belief is empirically insane, yet we accept it, and then act confused as the damage around us accelerates. This sin of modern man, who demands obedience from life, was codified in 1996 in the marketing slogan, Obey Your Thirst. It's unclear whether the saying influenced the culture or expressed what we had already become, In my experience as a priest, when modern Christians talk about obedience, they unwittingly reference this Coca-Cola slogan, not scripture. Humbly, they obey their thirst, channeling water away from the oasis to the city, fulfilling their selfish purpose. In God's eyes, on this point, the English language is broken. It is the human being not the so-called wilderness that is wild. It is the will of the human being that must submit to life, not the other way around. From the beginning of Luke, the calling of Jesus is beyond the reach of what our Lord might want from life, what may motivate him, none of which is a topic in scripture, or what he might choose to do given a chance. On the contrary, the calling of Jesus is expressed, as it is for all human beings, in the assignment of his name over which he has no control, and to which, like Zacharias, he is forced to submit." Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, verse 21. You're listening to the Bible as Literature.
0: Hey. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos, And this is Dr. Richard Benton.
1: And you are listening to episode 462 of the Bible as Literature podcast, One of the difficult aspects of the biblical teaching that runs contrary to the way we naturally operate in modern society, but is so good for us, is the lack of control we have over our situation as students of the Bible. Control is an expression of power. The way that Scripture deals with it, and we've talked about this with respect to Hebrew terminology in the book of Isaiah, something we learned from Father Paul. We've used this beautiful expression in English that arrogance, while it's ugly on a human being, is beautiful on God because when God is adorned in arrogance, everyone else is put in their place. This comes up again and again in Scripture, And it's expressed in the centrality of obedience. God speaks a command. The shepherds don't debate. They respond to the command with obedience. There's no distance between what is spoken and the action taken. When there is distance, when there is contemplation, when there's reflection, when there's debate, you have the disaster of Zacharias in chapter 1. Until he comes around and does what he is asked to do, which takes his personality, his aspirations, his desires, his thoughts out of the equation. Because sometimes in relationships, in community, in human life, in society, what we want our designs, the things that we desire, our aspirations, left unchecked, cause damage. So we have to be trained. That's what wisdom is. It's training to check those things at the door. And at the start, and this is something that is not unique to Scripture, but it's something that Scripture keys on, it has historically been common to all traditions. At the start of our short sojourn on this planet, before we can form a word, before we are within reach of what Father Paul recently called the age of wisdom, which is the age of seven, (laughs) long before we've even reached that age, we are given a name by our parents. And we have no control or power over that name. It is something that we are gifted And Scripture keys in on this practice because it is a biblical sign of grace. No choice, no debate, no calling or vocation in the American sense of the term where it's something you feel you want to do. It is a calling in the biblical sense, meaning it's an assignment that is handed to you without any deference towards your interest or preference. And that's why it's grace. It's something you have to grapple with. It's a card you were dealt. And this is part of our training, not in preference or desire, but in wisdom. That's difficult for many to understand in our current cultural moment. But it is the thing that makes life beautiful and at the same time meaningful in a way that our self-preoccupation will never do for us, for our communities, for our families, or for the life of the world. And we have just one such example of this here today in the Gospel of Luke, specifically with respect to our Lord Jesus Christ.
0: What is handed to The child, like you said, father, it's very important because before the child is able to make any decisions, before the child is able to claim its own destiny or have desires or wishes or dreams or anything like that, there is a story that is handed to him. And thank you for relating this to wisdom. Wisdom is something that comes before us and it will last after us. It's the way of the world that just exists in the way that life just exists. You know, Father Paul, don't talk about my life or your life. There's just life. You know, it's a river that we put our toe in for a while, and then we take our toe out, but the river just keeps going on and gets other people wet long after we're gone. That's how wisdom works. And the reminders of these rituals, I think, are very important because the fact that I do the same thing that my father did but not even did, had done to him, and that we continue with that tradition and submitting to that tradition is a way of saying that there is a story that's more important than my own personal story. And there's never been a time when this has been so much in conflict with the way that our society functions. It was not very long ago that if your father was a shoemaker, then you were going to be a shoemaker. What you wanted to do, that was not as much of a thing. Now, you would make shoes differently than your father did, but the way you became a shoemaker, as your father would find an apprentice, you would make shoes exactly like that master. And once you could make shoes exactly like that master, then and only then were you allowed to add your own creative touch. Your creative touch came after gaining the skill, after this body of knowledge was not just handed to you, but you could show that you mastered what was given to you. And only once you mastered what was given to you and could recite it backwards and forwards, then you were able to add. But it took a long, long time of learning and acquiring knowledge and acquiring wisdom. That's why the old men talked about wisdom first, and once they were done, then a young person was able to talk. But only after the old people finished speaking, because only once you can show that you've mastered this, then are you able to speak.
1: In the West, people love to talk about pursuing their dreams and the things that they feel called to do. I gave an example on Sunday in the homily of a man who needed help carrying a gas tank up the hill because his wife was pregnant and his car was stuck. And if he didn't get her to the hospital, she would die. And each person that he asked for help explained what was important to them in their life and why they couldn't help him carry the gas tank up the hill. And later I spoke to my daughter that same Sunday on the occasion of her birthday. And my daughter happens to love music. She plays the flute. She is committed to playing the flute. And I explained to her that she should pursue her interest in music, but she should understand that she is privileged that her parents were able to pay for her education in this very expensive passion that she has, and that the fact that she gets so much enjoyment and personal fulfillment in playing the flute should never stop her from doing the work that she's asked to do that doesn't give her personal fulfillment. This is wisdom. This is the question at hand. Duty and obedience pertain to the things that we are asked to do by God vis-a-vis His commandment, which is reflected back to us when someone who is injured needs help doing something we don't want to do in order to save the life of someone or when someone in the community needs help with something that we think is uninteresting or beneath us or not related to what we decide our calling is. But if we decide what our calling is, then it's not a calling. It's tragic the way we have perverted the word vocation to refer back to what we're interested in, which means that it is self-referential. But here in the Gospel of Luke, repeatedly, the calling, the thing that is vocalized, is not being vocalized by our inner passions, our inner interests, our inner thoughts. It is being vocalized by the messenger of God, the Angelos, who brings the Evangelion. In the case of a need in the local community, we know what we are commanded in the Evangelion of God. We are commanded always to love the neighbor. We know what we are commanded to do. Nowhere do we hear in Scripture that we are to pursue our dreams. It doesn't prohibit us from doing the things that we find interest in, unless we do so at the expense of the commandment of God. And here, it applies first in all things. It applies first and foremost and above all to our Lord Jesus Christ. And when eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Verse 21 is hard fought, Rich, when you think back to the resistance, the resistance of the temple priesthood. But again, God is pleased. We talked at length about the Evdokia of God. He is pleased that his will is being accomplished. He is assigning the name which pertains to his victory for the life of the world. That is the name given. And it was ordained before Jesus was even conceived in the womb because it is the teaching, the instruction spoken by the Father and i love i love the example you gave rich and hopefully you'll elaborate a bit on this about this idea of submitting to what came before you because we are not dismissing here the custom of 8 days or the custom of circumcision
0: right circumcision was what was commanded and this was the first fulfillment it's unfortunate the translation had passed 8 days were completed or fulfilled, is what the Greek says, epilistisan. And once these days were fulfilled, then it was time for the circumcision, and then he was called by the name Jesus, or his name was called Jesus. We'll say that literally. You have both the circumcision on the eighth day and the naming, so you already have this law, this rule that was laid out for Jesus before his parents were born. This is just the way that things went. And the fact that it recalls chapter one as well, that the reason why he was called Jesus was because that was what the angel said had to happen. The angel called his name Jesus. That's why Mary called his name Jesus. It's that simple. Mary continues to do what the angel said she was supposed to do. And already this is the second naming where the author is making a big deal. So. O Theophilus, understand that the discussion about Zacharias' son not being named Zacharias but named John, the fact that Jesus is so named because Mary was commanded by the angel, these first commandments that are being fulfilled are the naming. Ascribing these characteristics or ascribing these stories to who these people are going to be, was ordained before their conception. Jesus takes this name, Joshua, Yeshua, which the Lord saves. And this is the same as the name of Hosea and of Isaiah and Joshua, son of Nun, in the book of Joshua. We have these other stories that now get recalled as we bring in these other stories of prophets who— bring salvation, bring this word of salvation to the people. Jesus not only takes on the name that his mother was commanded to give him, but also the name that is pregnant scripturally that assigns a story to him before he was born. So, Jesus is here to continue in this line of obedience, continue in this line of the word of salvation, which has been given to generation after generation through Scripture.
1: By accepting the will of his Father, which will be tested in Luke, as we'll see later when Jesus tests his earthly parents, Joseph and Mary— walking a fine line on the question of obedience when he leaves them behind, scares them, and then says he's obeying his father's will. This is a big question in the Gospel of Luke. But here as a child, Jesus is powerless. He has no control over his name. And that is the condition, that is the state in which we hear repeatedly throughout Scripture, and Jesus himself will say, he said it in the Gospel of Matthew, that is the state in which we are perfect. Let the little children come to me. Children are powerless to impose their will. This can't be overstated. It is adults that are the problem. Adults cause the problem in the story because adults, in fact, try to exercise their will. For freedom Christ has set us free in Galatians chapter 5. So don't put on again a yoke of slavery. The yoke of slavery is self-inflicted. Circumcision is self-inflicted. The whole play on language about self-inflicted wounds, mutilation in the letter to the Galatians is a play on you exercising your own control, your own power. You will end up hurting yourself freedom comes through the abdication of control it's a question of scope you know this classic story richard in the tradition of the desert fathers where someone is trying to contemplate god and then an angel appears to them and says here help me put the ocean into this little cup and then the young man says how can you put an ocean into the cup The angel says, well, of course you can't. Then why are you trying to understand God? You are troubling yourself with things too great and too marvelous for you. But in so doing, you are creating your own prison. Scripture is setting you free from the shackles of your own intellect. Obedience to wisdom sets you free from the trap of human reason. And it begins by accepting the name your parents gave you, without psychologizing or evaluating what you thought of your parents or what you thought of the name. It's the hand you were dealt that is the beginning of wisdom. And of course, in Scripture,
0: it is wisdom. Wisdom is the force that is fighting this force inside of the biological human being that wants to impose its will, basically from the time it feels his bottom is wet or his belly is empty. And it's a force that every human ego has to deal with. And the wisdom of scripture is always pushing against this. And I think this is the point that scripture offers is a counter ego that, as you said at the beginning, father looks beautiful when it's arrogant because the human ego, when it is arrogant is ugly. And here we have, A wisdom that is going to push against that ugliness with the beauty of its arrogance. Amen. Amen. Merry Christmas, Rich. Merry Christmas, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.